Hello and welcome to episode number 7 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to look at the three remaining Brandenburg Concertos, starting with number 4. Of the Brandenburg Concertos we've looked at to this point, number 4 is probably the most traditional in respect to the dominance of the solo instrument, in this case, a solo violin. During the course of the solo sections, it provides several dazzling examples of virtuoso figuration. But the concertino group also features two recorders who contribute some of the most memorable passages in the whole concerto, beginning with the opening measures of the first movement in G major, marked allegro in 3-8 time. While the first recorder sustains the fifth of the tonic chord, the second recorder quickly establishes the key with its rapid arpeggiation of the tonic and dominant chords, starting on the third of the scale in the upper octave. We'll call that arpeggio figure Ritornello 1A, and we'll hear it in a minute. After this initial flurry of 16th notes, the momentum actually slows down a little in the next couple of measures as both recorders deliver, in thirds, a relaxed and lilting little phrase, which is then repeated a step lower. We'll call this second idea Ritornello 1B. Here's a simplified example of the first six bars showing both motives. These opening six bars are then repeated with the two recorders switching parts, and at that point the momentum, temporarily relaxed, surges ahead with a new motive, all sixteenth notes shared between the solo violin and the recorders. It shoots up the G major scale quickly and then launches into another arpeggio-based figure as the harmony begins to move away from the simple repetition of tonic and dominant chords for the first time moving quickly through a strong progression that takes us to the key of D major. We'll call this motive Ritornello II. Once arriving in the new key, we hear a lengthy variant of the initial Ritornello theme, with the solo violin now taking on a more important role. There's one more motive I'd like to point out before we move on, and we hear it first in the recorders as the solo violin plays around with motive two. We'll call this new idea, played initially by the recorders, motive three, and it, or an ascending variant of it, plays an important role as the movement proceeds. We finally arrive at the first solo section back in G major, one that the solo violin dominates with a series of rapid arpeggios, although the two recorders make occasional contributions as well by reintroducing earlier motives. This solo section is quite lengthy, at 42 bars, the longest we've seen in the concertos we looked at to this point. In a somewhat unusual stroke, the long solo section ultimately surrenders not to the beginning of the opening theme of the Ritonello, but rather to the second part, the part we described earlier as beginning with motive Ritonello II. But we don't have to wait that long for the familiar opening motives to return, with the recorders once again doing the honors. But what we initially experienced in G major is now heard in E minor, and the mood does seem quite different. There are some cleverly syncopated exchanges between solo violin and recorders as the various motives parade by in the solo section that follows, and the Ritornello theme soon returns, this time in A minor. 
but this time it's embellished by 30-second note scale passages from the solo violin, which keeps up this punishing pace for 22 bars, a formidable achievement based on endurance alone. We'll hear a short excerpt from that section in an actual performance. Ritornello theme arrives at the end of all of this in C major, with the recorders presenting the main thematic ideas. But the solo violin remains active, providing a new, more slowly moving counter melody and double stops against the recorders. But after some syncopated exchanges between the solo violin and recorders, the solo violin begins to once more assert its dominance, and from this point on, we get a series of reminiscences of the opening Ritonello theme from the recorders, while the solo violin develops primarily, but not exclusively, motive two through various keys, supported from time to time by the rest of the orchestral strings, which sometimes results in an extremely busy texture. Eventually, the Ritornello returns in more or less its original form back in the tonic of G major, but even then, the solo violin continues to contribute prominently as we charge to the final cadence amidst a flurry of syncopations between the strings. We'll hear the opening of the movement through the first solo section. The second movement, marked on Dante, is in the relative minor key of E minor and in 3-4 time. The primary theme, heard in the solo violin, the first orchestral violin and recorder one, and doubled a third lower by second recorder and violin, uses mostly stepwise motion with frequent upper-neighbor dissonances and is unusually sinuous even for Bach. Its initial statement is only two bars long and is immediately repeated with parts switched. 
In fact, the initial two-bar phrase is repeated several times, adapted to the changing harmonic landscape, as the music moves away from the simple alternations of tonic and dominant seventh chords with which it begins, and moves toward first a minor, and afterward a wide-ranging series of keys. We'll hear a simplified version of the opening of the theme. The next important motivic element encountered is two-pronged, a descending chromatic line, which we'll hear, in my example, in the solo violin, and the second, closely related to it, an adaptation of the first bar of the opening theme, which itself contains an implied descending chromatic line within it. My simplified examples will show the descending chromatic line in the violin, the altered first measure motive in the second recorder, and the cello part to give some harmonic context as the chords go through the circle of fifths to end up back at E minor. These ideas dominate the movement, although there are little individual touches sprinkled in here and there to alleviate any predictability. For example, a couple of brief, almost cadenza-like solos from the first recorder to break up repetitions of the opening motive, one close to the middle of the movement and one right before the close. And of course, we hear other motives in passing, not directly derived from the ones I've focused on, for example, some descending scale patterns. But it's another one of those supremely concentrated movements in which a small number of intensely expressive motives a few master strokes, so to speak, serve to generate an entire canvas. We'll hear the opening of the movement. For the third movement, back in G major and in alla breve time, the Riccinello section is a fugue, whose rhythmically energetic theme divides into three distinctive motivic elements. The first bar, consisting of the ascending leap of a perfect fourth, which we'll call motive 1A. The second bar, consisting of an undulating, long, short shot, long, short shot, long scale fragment, which we'll call 1B. And the third and fourth bars, featuring overlapping, descending leaps of a fourth, with one-third snuck in there which we'll call 1C. The subject begins in the violas, and here's a simplified example showing all three motives, plus the invitation at the fifth from the second violins that comes in in the fifth bar, plus the accompanying counterpoint in the cello. By the way, I'm isolating these motives because Bach tends to use them independently from time to time as the movement progresses. 
not so much 1a, which is, after all, just the opening ascending interval and is usually connected to mode of 1b, but the other two, 1b and 1c, definitely play an important role moving forward and not just when the ritornello with its fugal theme recurs. My example ends just before the fugal subject is answered up an octave by first orchestral violins and solo violin together, and then four bars later by the lower strings, and a final entrance of the subject and the recorders after that. We'll hear all that in just a minute. Overlapping the recorder's entrance with the theme is a new ascending motive in eighth notes, which works its way through the upper voices in connection with another scale-wise motive first heard in the cello counterpoint against the subject. Here's a bit of this new motive as heard in solo violin and imitated by the first recorder. This new motivic idea combines with motive 1b described above for a few bars, but soon we get a cadence in G major and our first solo section featuring the solo violin begins. Initially, it's pretty mundane, consisting primarily of eighth-note arpeggios and scale fragments on tonic and dominant. Interestingly, the recorders refuse to disappear completely, chiming in with the fugue subject and its imitation from time to time. This solo section yields to a variant of the Ritornello fugue subject now heard in the lower strings in D major, with an octave leap replacing the initial ascending fourth. Far above this, in the texture, the solo violin and recorders are indulging in sustained suspensions of the sort we've seen Bach introduce before to add a little spice to a familiar harmonic vocabulary. We modulate, of course, and by the time the next solo section comes in, we're in E minor, and the solo violin dominates the action again in a seriously thinned-down texture. The texture gradually thickens a bit as the solo violin part becomes much more active and virtuosic, with swirling 32nd notes and cross-string single-note pulsations abounding. But predictably, even here, in the midst of the solo violin's most splashy display, we hear hints of the fugue subject periodically, at least motive 1A and 1B, in the orchestral violins in the middle of the texture. We'll hear a little bit of the solo violin's prototechniques in an actual recording. After this, the ritornello fugue subject returns in E minor in the solo and first violin, duly imitated by recorders and lower strings, until we get to another solo section. This one, however, does not function in the usual way. The solo violin does not overwhelm us with its glistening arpeggios or rapid passage work. In fact, the main melodic activity, mostly in the form of dramatic descending scale lines, comes from the second violin in viola, and with the upper voices once again placing a series of suspensions high in the texture. The next ritornello is at least temporarily in B minor, with the recorders handling the main theme, or at least the first couple of measures of the main theme, 
while the sole violin indulges in plunging arpeggios. But it's not a real ritonello, more of a transitional passage, which allows us to modulate again, this time to C major, where the fugue theme appears for the first time in the lower strings, while the recorders exchange scale fragments above it. But when the violin soloist enters, it takes complete control, and we really feel as if we're hearing another more or less authentic ritonello with proper fugal imitation between the solo violin and the first recorder. There's one last little solo section in which the solo violin and second recorder share the main role in an exceedingly thinned-down texture. And then, finally, back in G major, we hear another ritonello with all hands on deck. We then get something of a repeat of the earlier solo section that featured suspensions between solo, violin, and recorders, but it's just a glimpse. Before the fugue theme is introduced for the final time, with some unexpected stopping and starting in the process, we get the final statement of the theme and the drive to the final cadence in G major. I played you part of the violin's virtuosic figuration in the middle of the movement, but I haven't played the beginning yet, so here it is. We turn now to Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 2. This is a wonderfully colorful concerto in F major, the solo or concertino group consisting of trumpet, recorder, or flute, oboe and violin in the first and third movements, and the ripieno or full orchestra adding a couple of violins, viola, and violoni along with the continuo part. The first movement, alla breve but with no tempo marking indicated, is boisterous and high-spirited right from the beginning. The opening ritonello theme has two distinct parts, each two bars long. The first, played in unison by recorder, oboe, and all the violins, not surprisingly stays close to the tonic triad, stressing notes from that chord connected by faster-moving passing tones, the result being something very much like a fanfare motive, especially in conjunction with the trumpet triadic accompaniment figure. You'll notice the frequent use of that characteristic Bach motive, eighth notes followed by two sixteenths, which instantly provides energy and rhythmic momentum. Countless other Baroque composers have used identical motives, of course, but I don't think anyone has used it with more of a propulsive effect than Bach. The second part of the Ritornello theme is built on swirling 16th note scale passages, with its most distinctive aspect being its descending scale line at the end. Here is a simplified example showing both parts of the Ritornello theme. After the ritonello comes to an end eight bars later, we get our first solo episode. 
This is not the type of solo section which immediately introduces virtuoso figuration patterns by the soloist. It is, rather, the type in which the soloists introduce a distinctive new theme of their own. Initially, it's just an embellished ascending scale line employing the top three notes of the scale, two bars long, played first by the solo violin, but it's accompanied by some fresh chords, and the violin's well-placed trill makes it quite distinctive. Adding a lot of color to this section is the trumpet, which races up the scale and trills prominently on the dominant as the scale lines flash by around it. This first solo section is also remarkable for the number of interruptions it exhibits. We've seen this sort of thing before, passages that interrupt the solo section with what initially appears to be a recurrence of the ritornello, but which evaporates quickly. But in this case, there are multiple interruptions, four in fact, and although not exactly identical, they bear a strong resemblance to one another, each of them based on the first two bars of the ritornello. During the solo section, we've moved away from the tonic of F major and toward C major, and Ritornello number no. 2 begins in this key, although it actually starts on the dominant chord. This second Ritornello is not identical to the first. We actually hear the second part of the theme before we hear the first part, and the trumpet playing high in its range is the dominant melodic instrument this time around. This Ritornello comes to a close on C after just five bars, and we're back to another solo section. The solo trumpet also plays the leading role here as well, although the solo violin skitters around distinctively below it with a series of 16th note scales and arpeggios in what is initially a thinned out texture. But after just a couple of bars, the texture gets considerably busier, and while the trumpet holds out longer notes, sometimes trilled, the recorder soloist, doubled at the third at the bottom of the texture by the cellos, breaks into a series of undulating 16th notes while in the middle of the texture, everyone else is busy quoting the first bar of the ritonello. But all of this is happening softly, at, at a piano level, until the last three bars of the solo section, where things get much noisier, and the solo violin thickens the texture a bit more with some repeated multiple stops as we power our way into the next ritonello. During the course of this solo section, we've modulated to D minor, and the next ritornello stays in that key so that the familiar themes take on a somewhat different cast. Several commentators mark the end of this brief ritornello after only three bars, and there is an emphatic cadence at this point that seemed to suggest some sort of structural division. And it's also true that the recorder, oboe, and solo violin engage, rather softly at first, but with the flute quite high in its range, in a lot of very busy 16th note scale-wise passages of the sort often associated with solo episodes. On the other hand, and to some extent depending on the recording of course, a listener is likely to hear the trumpet part as the most conspicuous actor on the stage at this particular point, and the trumpet is proudly proclaiming the ritornello theme in D minor, theoretically at a soft dynamic level, but conspicuously nevertheless. So, is this a solo section, or a charmingly altered extension of the ritornello? And, of course, the answer is both. We've seen it before, although never more effectively. Even in a solo section, Bach continues to make very strong references to the ritornello theme, sometimes merely motives from that theme, sometimes the theme in its entirety. So, this is another of those wonderful hybrid sections, in some ways a perfectly respectable solo section, 
although the texture seldom isolates the soloist, as we've seen in some other examples, but one in which the ritalinal theme is an almost constant presence. Another thing that is decidedly true about this section is that it features some wonderful harmonic progressions, including some that seem almost astounding at first, but absolutely inevitable once you've had a chance to absorb them. Ritonello number no. 4 breaks out in B-flat major, and it's another short one, only three measures in all, before giving away to a solo section that mirrors to some extent the first solo section in the movement, quoting that new solo theme, first in the recorder, then the violin, oboe, and trumpet in turn, against a reduced texture. This time, the simple little two-bar theme is not interrupted by several recurrences of the Ritonello theme as it was the first time, but it is altered to allow for a number of quick key changes, and starting in B-flat, it ends up in C minor for the return of the Ritonello theme, heard in the middle of the orchestral texture, while below and above, waves of 16th note scale passages are heard as the dynamic level switches back and forth between piano and forte. The theme, or fragments of it, are heard then in G minor, and, following that, another solo episode begins, dominated initially by trumpet and recorder, and then by oboe and violin. As usual, the first part of the Ritonello theme keeps pumping away in support, particularly in the low strings. From that point on, a free interplay of motives occurs, and a strong circle of fifth progression propels the music forward. Finally, in the original key of F, we get an emphatic statement of the original Ritonello theme, and it appears that we're finally approaching the end. But after just four bars, Bach inserts another fascinating series of chords beneath the various echoes of the Ritonello theme, which is so compelling, we're almost sad to hear the movement come to a robust conclusion. We'll hear first an actual performance of the last section of the movement, including that exceptional chord progression that I just referred to. Now that we've heard the conclusion, let's go back and hear the opening of the movement. The second movement of the concerto, in D minor and marked andante, is another remarkable one. 
It features three of the concertino instruments, recorder, oboe, and solo violin, playing more or less equal roles over a continual accompaniment. The opening melodic statement, an expressive theme which the violin soloist begins on the fifth of the scale and, after hovering over its upper neighbor, makes its way sinuously down the scale for two bars to the tonic, with a notable trill halfway to its goal. As the oboe picks up the theme two bars later, the violin continues, providing a countermelody against the oboe and then the recorder, which takes up the theme after it. This continuation, four bars long, will come into its own as the primary melodic material later on in the movement, but for now it serves as an elegant counterpoint to later statements of the theme, providing some intensely emotional dissonances along the way. This opening theme and its continuation provides all the melodic material Bach requires to produce one of his most atmospheric slow movements. As the movement progresses through various keys, with corresponding adaptations naturally made to the original thematic material in order to affect those modulations, we finally arrive at B-flat major. Here, we do appear to get a sense of a contrasting theme, but it's an illusion because this new theme is actually based on the first three notes of what I referred to earlier as the continuation of the original melody, really the musical equivalent of a sigh, which we first heard as a counter-melody when the oboe repeated the original two-bar theme. Even at that, the original two-bar theme does not leave our consciousness completely. We hear it in the oboe and a little later in the recorder. But mostly, we're aware of the continuation or counter-melody, specifically the first three notes of it, as we modulate around and finally arrive back at D minor, where a variation of the original theme is represented and, with a harmonically remarkable four final bars, we cadence on D major. Here's the conclusion. The third movement, F major in 2-4 time and marked allegro assai, features the concertino or solo group right from the start. The trumpet takes pride of place by, high in its range, introducing a fugue subject that is rife with a familiar 8th note to 16th note pattern with strategically placed trills. After four bars in which Bach's favorite rhythm dominates, the theme lapses into a series of undulating 16ths that eventually descend a fifth before ending with two dramatic leaps. We'll hear first a simplified version of the theme 
including the invitation at the fifth by the oboe as the trumpet moves on to something of a countersubject, initially consisting of staccato eighth notes, but later moving on to busier sixteenth note scale passages. This initial fugal section is quite lengthy, 46 bars in all, and eventually includes entrances by the solo violin, after a bit of spinning out of earlier motives, accompanied by the countersubject in the oboe, and the recorder, now in C major, and, once again, after some spinning out of earlier motives, the trumpet. Throughout this section, only the continual parts, the harpsichord and cello, have served to underpin all of the activity, but the texture is nonetheless quite busy at times, with the soloists employing the countersubject and a free spinning out of the eighth note to sixteenths motive and others to fill up the space. After the fugal activity has played itself out, the piano instruments are added in and gradually start taking a somewhat more active role, especially the continual bass, but the emphasis remains on the concertino instruments. At this point, we get a respite from the fugal imitation, not from the fugue theme itself, however, as elements from the fugue theme and its countersubject are arrayed in an episode that features a descending line on different levels over a strong sequential chord progression. We'll hear an actual recording of that section. This episode, employing the whole orchestra, gives way to another concertino section, now in C major, featuring the solo violin with the fugue subject and the recorder providing a new harmony part against it, and later adding the oboe, which once again imitates the fugue subject at the fifth against elements from the counter subject and both the recorder and the violin. As we modulate to D minor, the piano instruments join in again, with the lowest strings taking over the fugue theme, but this yields quickly to another sequential progression incorporating a prominent descending line before the concertino group takes control again, presenting a new idea of sorts and involving some imitation. But, as usually the case with Bach, this somewhat new idea is actually based on earlier motives. But the full orchestra returns with the descending progression heard earlier, this time buttressed by suspensions in the orchestral violins. Still, the solo group stubbornly clings to the spotlight, with the recorder in particular offering up a flurry of activity high in its range. At this point, securely in B-flat major, with a strong cadence providing a line of demarcation, the fugue subject once again takes center stage, the theme in the oboe this time, and a countermelody in the trumpet above it. The recorder provides the imitation up a fifth on cue, and after another temporary key change, the whole orchestra is busy with the fugue subject, countersubject, and some new 16th note figuration patterns in the solo violin. Our familiar sequential progression with descending line passage makes a final return, complete with suspensions in the orchestral violins, and now, finally back in the home key of F major, we get a final abbreviated glimpse of the fugue subject and the final cadence. We'll hear the conclusion.
There is a great deal of variety in this concerto, variety of instrumental colors, variety of textures, infectious rhythms, and unusual and compelling harmonic progressions, and a myriad of thematic types, although all of them distinctively Bachian. It's no wonder that this work is one of the most popular of an extremely popular set of concertos. We turn now to Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5 in D major. This is a groundbreaking work for its use of the harpsichord, an instrument usually assigned only to continual duties, as a solo instrument and a virtuosic one at that. Because of this, Concerto Number no. 5 may be the most extraordinary of all the Brandenburg concertos. Movement 1 in D major, usually taken at a brisk, olive-brev tempo, begins with a typical Bach Ritonello melody, typical for the concertos anyway, moving up the tonic chord in double sixteenth notes before tipping down to the lower neighbor after reaching the top and then hurling itself back down to the bottom, all in the first bar. The second bar is like the first, but cuts off halfway for a dramatic drop of a fifth to the tonic note, the abrupt effect being almost like a syncopation. We'll call this idea Ritronello 1A, and here is a simplified and slowed-down version of the melody alone. So far, and not atypically for Bach, we've only heard two chords, tonic and dominant, but now the harmonic rhythm picks up as we move on to another idea. This one continues the doubling up of sixteenths while moving alternately by steps and skips and locking into a cozy little pattern with the cello and violone. We'll call this Ritonello 1B. This passage is often referred to simply as the spinning out or free and continuous development of the first idea, and while Bach and most Baroque composers most certainly engage in such activities, this particular idea turns out to have something of a life of its own, albeit in slightly different form, so we're going to give it its own label. Here's a simplified and slowed down version. When the opening ritornello comes to a close after eight bars, the concertino group takes over. We get a relatively serene little descending phrase from the flute, echoed a third higher by the solo violin, which we'll call solo 1A. This phrase concludes with some faster moving rhythms and a descending fifth, just like ritornello 1A. We'll call that concluding phrase solo 1B. Against this, we hear the first solo activity of the harpsichord, which begins an arpeggio-based 16th note figuration pattern in the right hand, which features a descending line from the dominant note, A, to the lower octave, an idea it repeats several times in both hands. When the harpsichord line heads back up, it increases its momentum with a temporary surge of 16th note triplets, the first of many times within the movement that Bach uses triplets to escalate the level of rhythmic activity in a passage. These triplet sixteenth notes are quickly picked up by the flute and solo violin who trade them back and forth in sequential patterns. We'll hear a simplified example showing this new thematic activity in the flute and solo violin and the harpsichord activity beneath it that sometimes anticipates it.
Okay, these are the most prominent motives appearing in first the ritornello and then the first concertina or solo section. Based on our experiences to this point with Bach concertos, it's reasonable to have some basic expectation about what's going to happen next. We can assume that there will be more ritornellos to come and that they will show strong family resemblances to each other in terms of their melodic content, although none is likely to be an exact duplication of any other one. We can also assume that these later ritornellos, often occurring in different keys and possibly modulating from one key to another, will be separated by solo episodes or sections in which the concertino group, the soloists, will be highlighted, perhaps individually, perhaps as a group, or in some combination. These solo episodes will also appear in different keys, of course, and also may modulate internally. We can further assume, based on our experience to this point, that the lines between the solo sections and the ritornellos will not always be clear-cut, that, for example, elements from the ritornello may be inserted, not always predictably, into the solo sections, and vice versa. Is this, in fact, what happens? Yes, to some extent, that is exactly what happens. For example, the second appearance of the ritornello in the key of A major breaks off after the first two bars, what we've been calling mode of ritornello 1A, to yield to several measures of solo activity featuring this flute and solo violin, introducing what appears at first glance to be a new melodic idea. But the catch is that this new melodic idea can actually be heard as simplifications of an earlier ritornello motive, in this case, what we described as ritornello 1b. So, has the ritornello been cut off and interrupted, or has the second part of it simply taken on a new form? The situation is further complicated by the fact that after more soloistic activity, the second half of the ritornello, the part that was referred to earlier as ritornello 1b, makes its appearance independently of the first half. It's almost as if the ritornello has been divided into two chunks separated by some unexpected solo activity. Is this the only unexpected development? No, before experiencing this concerto, most listeners would have considered it completely unexpected for the harpsichordist, traditionally assigned to a mere continual accompaniment role in the context of a concerto, to play such a huge independent part in the movement, and in fact in the concerto as a whole. It is not merely an equal partner to the solo violin and flute when it comes to the many solo sections. It becomes the dominating instrument with long, extremely elaborate solo passages that use a wide variety of virtuoso figuration patterns, some of them tailored perfectly to the keyboard. But it's not just the dominance of the harpsichord that is unusual in this movement. After a handful of ritornello and solo sections alternate, employing the motives I referred to earlier, plus some of the more neutral scale-wise and arpeggio-based figures that occur in all Baroque concertos, a brand new and rather unexpected theme is introduced in F-sharp minor. This is what it sounds like in a simplified version exchanged between the solo violin and the flute. It's unusual to encounter a brand new melodic idea at this stage in the proceedings, especially since this section comes exactly where you'd expect a ritornello to come, which normally brings with it familiar thematic elements. 
We do, in fact, hear the entire orchestra, just as we would be likely to do in a traditional ritornello, but clearly this is not a traditional ritornello, and the new thematic idea it presents is not simply tossed out and forgotten. Bach actually gets quite insistent about it, trading it back and forth, adjusted for the changing harmonies, between flute and violin several times. This new idea dominates the next several measures, although it remains in competition with the busy arpeggio patterns of the harpsichord. So, in other words, this passage is not a traditional ritornello, and it's not a typical solo section, and it doesn't bear a particularly close relationship to any of the themes or modals we've heard before. There's nothing else quite like it in any of the other Brandenburg concertos we've looked at. But it does provide an interesting break from some already very familiar melodic material, and it eventually gives way to a more generic accompaniment pattern played by flute and solo violin and the remainder of the orchestra, after which, and sometime later, a bona fide ritornello is heard back in the original key of D major. But the movement is far from over at that point. Solo violin and flute display some rapid passage work, but before long, the harpsichord once again seizes control with brilliant 30-second note runs and the full gamut of keyboard figuration tricks. This goes on an exceedingly long period of time, and eventually all of the other instruments drop out. But, undaunted, the solo harpsichord forges on and on until having finally exhausted, perhaps even over-exhausted, its expressive possibilities, we get a quick glimpse of the ritornello theme for the last time, and we move quickly to the final cadence. We'll play the conclusion of the movement, including some of the keyboard fireworks that lead up to it. The slow movement in B minor, and in common time, is another extremely expressive one and marked affettuoso, a characterization that suggests, at least to some conductors, a fair amount of rubato. The instrumentation with solo flute or recorder, solo violin and harpsichord, is rather like that of the traditional trio sonata, but once again it's the use of the harpsichord that marks this movement as distinctive. 
The instrument does not merely produce a bass line and chords to fill in the harmony. It contributes two distinctive melodic lines to the texture, often independently. The movement opens with a distinctive theme in the violin with an initial mode of just four notes in its original form that is pervasive throughout the first 25 bars. It appears not only in the violin and flute parts, but also in the harpsichord, sometimes in the right hand, sometimes in the left hand, always recognizable because of its shape and the dotted 16th, 32nd note rhythms. But the motive we encounter first is not the only important motive in the movement. At the end of the excerpt I'm about to play, another important motive begins to emerge, initially in the harpsichord. So, we'll play the opening of the movement, an actual performance, in which you'll hear the first motive announced in the violin and immediately imitated and then extended by the flute. Then, six measures in, but remember, these measures go by slowly, you'll hear the second motive in the harpsichord. It begins with three descending notes and then moves on to a lower neighbor figure. This second motive, the one you heard near the end of my excerpt, takes on different forms as we proceed through the movement, but it ends up playing, at least in some passages, almost as important a role as the first motive. For example, a few bars after our excerpt were in E minor, and the second motive, somewhat expanded in shape but still clearly recognizable, is prominently featured in a passage in which it's echoed back and forth between the flute and violin while moving up a step on each repetition. It's such a distinctive melodic event that you almost want to hear it as a contrasting middle section, except for the fact that the motive actually stems from earlier in the movement, so it's difficult to think of it as truly contrasting. And also, as you'll be able to hear in my excerpt, it doesn't take long for the original motive, the one that began the movement, to reclaim its dominance, and the movement closes with a varied restatement of the original motive with motive two nowhere in sight.
To this point, I've concentrated on the way Bach manipulates the main motives, but his use of harmony is just as impressive. Some of the modulations are extraordinarily clever, one in particular where he carefully sets up the key of G major only to unexpectedly drop the tonic chord a half-step to a dominant in the original key of B minor, and in the space of one measure, we magically find ourselves back to the original key with which he finishes the movement. I'm not suggesting that Bach invented this type of progression, but, once again, his use of it, the context in which he places it, it is undeniably effective. And, once again, completely aside from the creative harmonic devices that Bach employs, the prominence of the harpsichord and the fact that it contributes two actual voices to the texture would be enough to mark out this movement as being very different from any Bach slow movement we've heard so far. The final movement in D major again in Marc Allegro is, not surprisingly, a lively fugue in the style of a French gigue. The fugue theme has two distinctive components, the first an energetic ascending leap of a fourth, and then an adotted eighth sixteenth rhythm back down again. We'll call it mode of 1A. The second component is the undulating triplets that follow. We'll call that mode of 1B. We'll hear the opening of the movement where the solo violin begins the fugue and the flute enters up a fifth two bars later, against which the violin goes on to a couple of bars of staccato eighth notes, followed by more triplet figures, both of which are also duly imitated by the flute. As the original ideas are spun out, the harpsichord enters in bar 9, the left hand with the fugue theme, and the right hand a fifth higher two bars later, and then proceeds to spin out the theme, at first with rapid 16th note scale lines, and then with frequent trills and passages in parallel thirds, as the solo violin and flute weave back and forth above it, sometimes sustaining notes, sometimes inserting fragments of the fugue theme. Bach is an expert at marshalling his forces, and some of the most effective passages are those in which the rest of the orchestra gradually merges in with the soloist with fragments of the theme. Bach's textures, when the entire orchestra enters, are often quite complex, but in this movement he will from time to time make use of as many as five completely independent parts, more typical of the French tradition. Here's an opening of the movement with the fugue theme and its invitation. striking departures from normal expectations as the movement progresses, but I'm going to play one more particularly effective passage. At this point in the music, we've modulated to B minor, and the solo flute once again starts up the fugue theme, not in its original form, but rather in an expressive variant in which the first four notes, which we referred to earlier as mode of 1A, yield not to gently undulating triplets, 
but to a sustained non-harmonic tone, a G against a B minor chord in this case, while triplets are played against it in the solo violin and harpsichord. As this variant of the fugue theme continues, the sustained note, actually a half note tied over the bar, dips down two bars later to an F-sharp, which is no longer technically a dissonance, but still seems so because the harpsichord pedal beneath it continues to suggest a tonic pedal. The whole passage is then repeated with minor adjustments, with the solo violin taking the flute's part, and, following that, with the harpsichord taking on the variant motive, where the sustained note is replaced by a trill. The effect is more complicated in the description of it than in the actual experiencing of it, but it's still one of the high points of the movement. From that point on, a few new melodic ideas are added, but almost always in consort with the motives from the original fugue theme that we've already talked about. The sustained note variant of the fugue theme, heard in the previous example, also makes a return, this time in the orchestral violins and in the new key of A major, which of course gives it quite a new aura. But the effect is short-lived and the fugue theme soon returns in E minor with all of the upper strings and flute together but it doesn't take long for the harpsichord to once again establish its dominance as it begins a long solo with its own rendition of the fugue. Fragments of the fugue theme from the upper strings continue to make their presence felt and the various motives are spun off for quite a while until there is, somewhat unusually, a full stop cadence on B minor. Then, after the briefest of pauses, the fugue theme starts up again in D major in the solo violin, is responsibly imitated by the flute, and, for the most part, the whole first part of the movement is replicated as we head to the final cadence. It's another high-energy finish for a Bach concerto, with sometimes simple but always distinctive themes demonstrating their unending vigor and flexibility. Okay, that's it for today. The Brandenburg Concertos are a tough act to follow, but we'll take one more episode to talk about a few of Bach's other great concertos. <laughs>